If you would, go ahead and remain standing. Kathy, turn me down just a little bit. I'm echoing. And open up your Bibles to Romans chapter 7. And we'll begin reading in verse 1. Or do you not know, brothers, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives. For a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is set free from that law. And if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work, and our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we may serve in a new way of the Spirit, and not in the old way of the written code." Please be seated. As I was preparing to preach this week, I was reminded of how important it is when we take a book like Romans that we remember the literary genre that we're actually reading here. Because it's easy for us to look in our Bibles and we see these short headings and we see the chapters and we see the verses. It's easy for us to take those and forget everything that's around it. As we look at individual sections of Romans, it's critical that we remember that there is, this is a letter, there's an overarching theme to the entirety of the book of Romans. And Paul sums up that theme in verses 16 and 17 of the very first chapter of the book. He says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also the Greek. For it is For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. So before we jump into our text today, I want to take a look at just where we are in this overarching letter and the overarching theme of this. In chapters one through about three and a half, Paul wrote of God's righteousness and man's utter sinfulness. About chapters three and a half to four and a half, we see the righteousness of God. We see the saving grace of God provided through the death of his son. Salvation that was purchased by Christ. It is grace alone. It is faith alone. It is Christ alone that justifies sinful man. Where we are now is we're in the middle of chapters about five through eight. And this is on the hope that we have as a result of righteousness by faith. We have the assurance that we have in Christ. We have the hope that we have in Christ because of his triumph over Adam's sin. We see Christ's triumph over the power of sin. We see the triumph of grace over the power of the law. Next week, Casey will go in and talk about the law and sin and what that means in the life of the believer. We see a life that's in the Spirit, and we see assurances of all of these hopes, all found within chapters 5 through 8. So today we're in the middle of this, and we need to remind ourselves 
this section really isn't about us. It's not. It's about what Christ has done for us. It's not about gifts that we receive through the Spirit. It is about the work of the Spirit, which we just so happen to be recipients of those gifts. So today we're going to look at Christ's triumph over the power of the law. And the reason I bring all this up is if we just pluck verses 1 through 6 out of chapter 7, and we don't put it into context of everything around it, what we end up with is a very quick lesson says, hey, you're released from the law, let's move on. But in these short verses, there's so much there. And it's a beautiful thing that's easily missed if we just pluck those verses out and look at them by themselves. So I don't want us to miss out on the fullness of what these verses have to say, the beauty that's found in it. And it's all about the completed work of Christ. Christ bought our salvation. We have assurance only because Christ so completely took on the cup of wrath that we have earned for ourselves. It is Christ that defeated death. It's Christ that triumphs over sin. It's Christ that triumphs over the law. All of it's Christ, none of it's us. And as you probably see in the world today, all too often, even in our Reformed theology, we make salvation about us and the things that we've gained from it. But it's all about Christ. So Paul begins our text with a legal proposition. He says, Or do you not know, brothers, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives. So we need to put this into context. So when you see, therefore, for, or, or do you not know, we got to backtrack just a little bit. But here we got to backtrack a little further than normal. A lot of people tie this to the end of chapter 6, but it's really tied to the beginning of chapter 6. So let's read that first section of chapter 6. So again, the, the legal argument here is that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives. So Romans chapter 6, beginning in verse 1. What shall we then, uh, say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized in, in, into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in new, newness of life. For if we've been united with him in in a death like this, we shall certainly be united with him in a a resurrection like his. Paul's already painted this picture of our death in Christ. That In chapter 6, he's talking about sin, but now he's going to tie this to the law as well. So Paul uses a simple, a very simple illustration starting in verse 2 of chapter 7 of our text. For a married woman is bound by the law to her husband while he lives. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is freed from that law. And if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. So very simple illustration. 
We have a particular law that, that Paul is talking about here, the law of marriage, and a woman is only bound as long as her husband lives. To live with anyone else while your husband is alive, you're an adulterer. But that's not true if the husband has died. It's a very simple illustration. But don't try to make it an allegory because Paul doesn't do that here. So many people try and go back and say, well, we're, we're the wife, uh, Christ is the law, or uh, Christ is the husband, because Christ died. Well, that, that doesn't work because we can marry another. We can go back and say, the law is the husband, but the law doesn't die. We just marry another. So Paul did not mean this for an allegory or for some deeper meaning here. It is literally just an illustration, an example of his legal proposition that he's making. So we go on into verse 4 and 5, and this is where he actually applies his illustration to the truth that he is teaching. It says, Likewise, my brothers, you have died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. So Paul paints a very vivid picture here. And again, I don't want to focus on what it means for us. This is a picture of what Christ has done for us. So I want you to note here, it doesn't say that the law has died. It says that we have died to the law. And this is in accordance with what Christ taught. In Matthew chapter 5, he says, Do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. Uh, I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not one iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of, these, of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. That is where we are before faith in Christ, married to the law. And don't get me wrong here, the law is good, it's perfect, it's holy, but it does not have the power to save. It was never intended to have the power to justify us before God. Turn with me to Galatians chapter 3. It's Galatians chapter 3, beginning in verse 21. Paul writes, is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if the law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin, so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. 
For in Jesus Christ, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. Uh, There is no male or female. For you are all one in Jesus Christ. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. Notice the words that Paul uses to talk about the law here. Still a very good thing. But we were held captive under the law. We were imprisoned until saving faith came. We're bound by the law, imprisoned under sin. And as we've already seen, there's no work, there's no deed, there's no law, there's nothing apart from God's grace and faith in Christ that can justify us. Paul wrote in chapter 3 of Romans, as it's written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Skip ahead a little bit. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Paul paints this, this picture here of a previous marriage for believers. That marriage is to the law. It was never meant to produce righteousness. Rather, it was to bring the knowledge of sin. And that sin produces death. And that sin rightly brings God's righteous wrath with it. But for those whom God called to saving faith, we die to the law so that we can be joined for another. For what purpose? Why would God save anyone? Casey asks this question all the time. The question isn't, why does God save some? It's, why does God save any? And I'm sure if you were to ask this to 10 different believers, hopefully not in this church, but if you were to go around and take a survey of believers in the area and ask them, why would God save anyone? You'll hear the very common answers. Because he loves us. Because he doesn't want us to go to hell. Because he wants a personal relationship with us. But that's not what Paul writes here. Those things are true. Don't get me wrong. But that is not the primary reason that Paul writes here. Paul says that we're united in Christ in order that we may bear fruit for God. Does that negate the fact that God loves us or he desires to have a relationship with us or that he doesn't desire us to go to hell? It doesn't negate that. But it turns this man-centered view of salvation back to a God-centered view. He unites us in Christ in order that we may bear fruit for God. And this is something we could never do while we were under the law. Not only did we have the inability to produce fruit for God, we had no desire to even try to do it. In Isaiah 64, the prophet wrote, We have all become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. We all fade like a leaf, and our iniquities like the wind take us away. There is no one who calls upon your name, who rouses himself to take hold of you. For you have hidden your face from us and have made us melt in the hand of your iniquities. We have no desire prior to faith for the things of God. We have no ability to be righteous. 
But having died in Christ, being united in Christ, we can now produce fruit. And specifically produce fruit to God. There's not any picture, I think, more beautiful in Scripture than the picture of Christ as a husband and the church as a bride. In Ephesians chapter 5, Paul was giving husbands instructions, but, but he paints this picture of Christ in the church as well. It says, husband, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Why? That he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word. This, is a, this marriage picture is, is, is so perfect, although we can't compare it to marriages then or even especially now. But having died to the law, having a new marriage in Christ points to the love, to the responsibility, to the... What's the end of... Most marriage vows, till death do us part. That says a lot for Christ who will never die again. That we will never be parted. Where the law was unable to save, God's grace shone through that. So we now belong to another And that should, let me not say should, it does totally transform us. And the reason I may say should is because there's this idea out there, there's this gospel out there that if you just say the right words, if you do these two or three things, you will be saved. Well, the true test of if any of that's true is what should happen if you are saved. But we're talking about, again, not a decision that man has made. We're still talking about what Christ has done for us so that we can say we will be completely changed. In Galatians chapter 2, it says, for, though I have, uh, for through the law I died to the law. Why? So that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Paul goes on in verse 5 to paint this picture of what it was like before salvation. We're in the flesh. Our life is characterized by our sinful desires. For those in the flesh, the law arouses our sinful desires. Again, we need to be very clear here. We're not saying, Paul is not saying that the law creates sinful desires, but rather the law arouses the sinful desires that we already have. Our work, our deeds, our fruit are for death when we're in the flesh. Paul sums up this legal proposition in verse 6 saying, but now we have been released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in a new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. 
So again, Paul started with this simple legal argument. The law only binds us while we live. He gives the illustration of a married woman being released from the law of marriage when her husband dies. He then applied the legal argument to our new life in Christ. And here we see that he affirms once again this legal proposition. We, having died to the law, are released from the law. But it leaves us with two questions. First, what law are we talking about? What law are we released from? And the second question is, what does it mean to be released from whatever that law is? As you can imagine, there's a lot of debate out there on exactly what we're talking about here. So let's start with the first question. What is the law that believers are released from? Many will look at this and jump straight to the Mosaic Law. They'll start talking about the threefold division of the law, surmising that Paul must be talking about being released from the ceremonial law or the civil law or the moral law as handed down by Moses. But if we look at the context of the rest of Romans, Paul actually takes a lot of steps to avoid those divisions. He spent nearly three chapters showing the unrighteousness of all men, both Jews and Gentile, both those that have the law, the Mosaic law, and those that did not have it. He used Abraham as an example of justification by faith and not works of the law. He chose uh, a great figure to choose, but someone that was justified by faith some 400 years before the Mosaic law was given. In chapter 5, he talks about a time before the law was given, saying, Therefore, just as sin came through the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all men sinned. For indeed, sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one to come. So if Paul avoids these subdivisions of law, I think it's important that we do the same thing. The law here encompasses all of these things. It encompasses both the Mosaic law and the law that is naturally written on men's heart, the law that God has written on our hearts. And I think we can prove this if we go back and, again, take into context what we've already seen in Romans. In Romans 1, verses 18 through 23, it says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. This is the law that Paul is talking about. Yes, it encompasses the Mosaic law, but Gentiles aren't off the hook because it also includes what is plainly known from creation. 
So that leads us to the second question. What does it mean to be released from the law? So let's start with Paul, what Paul has already written and very clearly written what it does not mean to be released from the law. In Romans 6, 4, he says, what, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who have died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Jesus Christ are baptized into his death? In Romans chapter 6, what then? Are we to sin because we are not under law but under grace? By no means. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as an obedient slave, you are slaves to the one whom you obey, either to sin, which leads to death, or obedience, which leads to righteousness? Going on in chapter 7, that Casey will cover, begin to cover next week, uh, verses 6 and 7. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we may serve in a new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. What then shall we say that the law is sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. What being released from the law absolutely does not mean is that we're free to do what the law forbids. We need to be very clear about that. This is not some verse saying that we as Christians now have the ability to sin and not worry about the consequences of sin. Not, not have to worry about... It, just, it doesn't even make sense. And yes, there's no condemnation... But as Paul wrote, how, how can we be slaves to sin and free from the law? So we have six short verses that say that through Christ we've died to the law. Again, it's important to get the fullness of this because if we had just gone with these six verses and left everything else alone, we'd be left with those questions of what, what do we do? So I believe that Paul fully answers our second question of what does it mean to be released from the law, but he does so in Romans chapter 8. So let's turn there real quick. Romans chapter 8, beginning in verse 1. It says, There is therefore no, now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for uh, flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh but according to the spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the spirit set their minds on the things of the spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. It cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If, in fact, the spirit of God dwells in you. 
Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through the Spirit who dwells in you. John MacArthur put it this way. We as believers died in Christ when he paid our sin debt on Calvary. We were therefore released from our moral and spiritual liabilities and penalties under God. Let me read that last part again. We were thereby released from our moral and spiritual liabilities and penalties under God, under God's law. As Paul wrote in Galatians, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. And in that last little section of verse 6 of our text, Paul leaves us again with a purpose for this. It says, but now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in a new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. Again, so that we may bear fruit to God. I don't want to just gloss over that. It's, it's a very simple idea. We've died to the law so that we may bear fruit. We were released from the condemnation of the law so that we can do what we've never been able to do. Never once been able to do. To obey the law and to love it. The psalmist wrote in Psalm 19, The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. While we were unbelievers, while we were slaves to the law, while we could come and read Psalm 19, we could not fully understand the depth of truth that is found there. Not only could we not understand it, we actively fought against these ideas. We desired nothing more than to thwart God's law. But now, having died in Christ, being made into a new creation, we can begin, we've been given hearts that desire to keep it. So I'll, I'll close with this. If you're here and you've not placed your faith and trust in Christ, in Christ alone for salvation, you may look at God's law and say, I want no part of all of these rules and regulations. But let me tell you this. You're a slave to God's law. You don't have a choice to take part in these. Your desire not to follow God's rules proves that you are a slave to those laws, whether you want to be or not. Some of you may say, I can see how God's laws are 
good. And if I obey enough of them, I'll be righteous enough. If I just, if I'm just good, if I can balance this scale of good and bad in my life, I'll be justified before a holy God. The law has never been good enough to save anyone, not a single person. We cannot be good enough. It's only through Christ fulfilling the law. It's through him dying a sinner's death. It's from him raising from the dead that we can be saved. The fact of the matter is, you have not a single bit of righteousness to present to God. I in the flesh do not have a single bit of righteousness to offer to God. only through the completed work of Christ. The only righteousness that is presentable to God that justifies, that saves, is Christ's perfect righteousness. So I I would urge you, if you've not placed your faith for salvation in Jesus Christ, first and foremost, repent and believe. That's what Scripture says. Repent and believe. Casey and I would love to talk with you anytime if you have questions, if you have concerns. But it's my prayer for all of us today that this text will stick in our minds this week and we'll take the God-centered view of this text and just marvel at the things that Christ has given us through his death and how undeserving that we are how great of an inheritance that we have as the bride of Christ. So join me in prayer. Heavenly Father, your your grace is boundless. We, We can't even begin to understand the fullness of the divide that is between sinful man and a God that is thrice holy. Lord, let us be reminded this week that while salvation absolutely shows your love, it shows uh, your desire for relationship with, with us, There's a purpose in it. And that purpose is to bring glory to your name. Lord, it's so that we may produce fruit that is glorifying to you, Lord. Not because you need it. Because it's owed to you. All glory belongs to you. So I pray that you would put it on our hearts to meditate on scripture this week to meditate on your holiness and to not take for granted the, the gifts that you've given us, including the very faith that it takes to justify us. We ask these things in your holy and precious name. Amen.